Life is hectic, so wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with Factor's chef-crafted and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. With over 35 options a week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more, they've got a variety that fits your lifestyle. Factor has restaurant-quality meals ready to heat and eat in just two minutes. They also have various easy options for the entire day, from breakfast to midday bites, smoothies, and more. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is a nutritious and delicious experience, and it won't break the bank. You can customize your meals by choosing 6 to 18 per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule deliveries anytime to fit your schedule. Factor meals are 100% hassle-free, giving you more time for what matters. Head to factormeals.com slash otherside50 and use the code otherside50 to get 50% off. That's code otherside50 at factormeals.com for 50% off your delicious, hassle-free meals. Hello, and welcome to our podcast, The Other Side NDE, where we talk about the fascinating phenomena of near-death experiences. These are more than just close calls. These are first-hand accounts of what people experienced dying, leaving the body, exploring another realm, and then returning to their body in order to share that experience with you. Every person that we interview, and many of us listeners, believe these accounts to be undeniably true experiences people had on the other side. If you enjoy listening to stories like these, make sure to check out our YouTube channel, The Other Side NDE, where we post two to three videos every week of people sharing their NDE stories. Hi, my name is M.K. McDaniel. My friends call me Kathy. And I am the author of a memoir, Misfit in Hell, to Have an Expat. It describes my life before, during, and after a distressing near-death experience. I was a cradle Catholic. My folks were Catholic. I always went to Catholic schools, taught by the nuns and the priests, went to church every Sunday. I believed everything that I was taught. Now I've come to believe that I was misinformed. When I was 53 years old, I was asked by my best friend to please accompany him to Seattle because he had leukemia. There was a certain research hospital. He had to have two caregivers and I was going to be one of them. So I left California, went to Seattle, Washington, found us a place to live just a couple blocks from the hospital and settled in. We were told it would be two or three months we'd be there. Well, eight or nine months later, we were still there. He had become better, he would get worse. The other caregiver had broken her foot and now I was taking care of her too. This was around the clock duty. He would start bleeding from the nose in the middle of the night and we'd have to take him over to the emergency room. He'd be in the hospital for a week and then he'd, we'd bring him home. This really took a toll on all of us. And then in November, he died. It was a blow. I was mentally and physically, emotionally and spiritually spent. There was nothing left. I went to a program, a singing program with a friend, a guy I was dating while I was up in Seattle. And I caught a terrible flu that was going around, very similar to COVID. I got that flu turned into pneumonia, which turned into ARDS. 
that's acute respiratory distress syndrome. I was given a 38% chance of living. I went from being an independent person to being someone on a ventilator, put into a drug-induced coma for three weeks. My family all came out from California and Colorado and they were told I probably wasn't going to make it, but they would try everything they could. This was 23 years ago and they didn't have the technology. They were experimenting on the likes of me. Just before I went out, the doctor came in and said, I'm going to give you something called white amnesia, and that's going to cause you to completely forget or not be able to remember anything that will happen to you in this coma while we're doing all these terrible experimental things to you. Uh, you'll thank me for it. So I had no choice. I said goodbye to my parents and my daughter and family. And I prepared to just go to sleep. Well, that's not what happened. I don't know when in this three week period, it might've been when they told my family that I was not going to make it and they needed to say their goodbyes. I really don't know. But in a drug induced coma, your spirit can wander. And all of a sudden I woke up, I became conscious and it was completely dark. There wasn't a sound. I had no reference as to whether I was sitting or standing. I thought somebody was playing a trick on me and stuck me in a closet. We did that as kids. So I just waited and waited and waited. But all of a sudden there seemed to be a reddish glow in front of me and it, it was getting just a little bit lighter and I thought, good, the sun's coming up. Okay, now I can see where I am and what's going on. But as it got lighter, it became very foggy and swirling around. I couldn't see through it. It became uncomfortably warm. I smelled something terrible. And then I started hearing shriekings and moaning coming out of this fog. I said to myself, this can't be good. Then all of a sudden out of this fog came this booming voice that said, do you know where you are? Oh. I thought and I thought and I thought, and I said, I hope I'm wrong, but hell. And the voice boomed back with this maniacal laugh. I was freaked. I didn't care what happened to me. I had to get away from them, that thing. So I turned and I ran into the darkness. All of a sudden it became light. And as I looked around, terribly confused, where had I been? Where was I now? I saw this huge city it reminded me of New York, but there had been an atomic bomb, aliens. I couldn't figure it out. The buildings were all falling over and on fire. The windows were blown out. There was big chunks of concrete everywhere with rebar sticking out of them. There was screaming and, and yelling and, and fires. I was terrified. I sought to find a place to kind of tuck myself in so I could get my wits about me. It became obvious that I was in serious danger. There were funny noises, a scuttling metallic noise, like a, a giant spider or a tank. And then there was a group of people that seemed to come out of the darkness and come toward me. 
They didn't talk. They were in rags. They didn't get too close. And I said, well, okay, you guys survived too. Maybe we can get some water and some food. And, and one of them said, we are all alone here. I thought, oh, well, I better find another place to be. So I took a chance and I ran out into the rubble and I tried to climb this concrete wall. But as I got to the top, my fingers started slipping down and I fell backwards into the darkness. Boom, the lights came up. Now I was somewhere else. I didn't understand how that could happen and I was glad to be out of that last scenario, but now what? When I looked ahead, it looked to me like a, a movie set. There was a stage and on the stage, there was like beauty parlor chairs, all canted and crooked and, and mirrors that also were disfigured and weird, like a, a house where they have the haunted house and everything is spooky and weird. But then I saw somebody I knew it was a relative of mine and, and a person that you had to be careful around. She was very cautious about looking good all the time. And that could be okay, even if you were a little snarky on the inside, as long as you looked good. Well, I was glad to see a familiar face. I thought I would go talk to her. So I went to this set and she says, oh my gosh, you look awful. Get up here and I'll fix your hair and your makeup. I climbed up into a chair and I said, no, you don't understand what's going on here. There's something very weird. She says, uh, no, if you look good, it'll be all right. She had two of her friends there who were also very good looking and always impeccably dressed. So when I said that, they all started laughing at me and then laughing really, really mean. And they wouldn't stop laughing. And it made me mad. So I just got off of that stage and I walked into the darkness. The next thing that happened is the lights went out and up they came. This time I had to look up because there was a demon standing there. People say, how do you know that was a demon? Well, if you've never been to Australia and you saw a kangaroo go by, you'd say that's a kangaroo. Well, this was a big, ugly looking kind of not even a person, it's like a, I don't know, Yeti, I guess, with a, a ratty outfit on, with a big stick. And I looked up and I looked back and I thought, oh, golly, what's this? And he says, do you want to get out of here? And I said, in perfect English. And I says, yes. And he says, okay, I can see to it that you get out of here. And I says, great. And he says, one job, I got one job for you. And I said, all right, that's kind of weird, but sure, what is it? And he waved his hand. And when he did, the lights came up behind him. And as far as I could see was a field of blackberry bushes with the big canes that overlapped one another with the thorns an inch and a half long. And I looked at this huge field and I got a bad feeling. He says, all you got to do is cut down all those brambly bushes and I'll see that you get out of here. Now, I am from Washington, and there's a lot of blackberries up here, and I know it It would have taken me years with equipment and gloves and sharp scissors and all of that stuff to get that done. But I thought, well, I got no place else to go. Sure, give me a chance. So he handed me these paper-cutting scissors that you give children when they go to kindergarten, and he laughed. 
I thought, oh, that's not a nice guy here. But I yanked the scissors from him and I tried to scoop down as far as I could get. And I was getting all scratched up. And I started gnawing on one of these canes until it finally came loose. And I turned to kind of put it behind me so I could get to the next cane. But when I turned around, it grew back right in front of me. The demon started laughing and I wasn't gonna give him any pleasure in this. So I just went back to cutting. I was not a happy camper. And then it went dark and then the lights came back. I was walking on a road and I thought this was probably a good thing because it was flat. It was just gravel and dirt as far as you could see any direction. And way in the, in the distance, there was a horizon with that reddish glow, but no trees or bushes or signs or anything, just a road. I thought, well, at least nobody's gonna sneak up on me. I can do a 360 here and I can walk. Uh, it'll be good. I like walking, let's walk. Well, I walked and walked and walked and walked and walked. Later, I learned that in eternity, there is no time so this is why it seemed eternal that I was on that road at this time. I walked and walked, and then finally I started smelling something, but it smelled good. And I thought, oh, I don't know how long I've been here. I'm tired and I'm hungry and I'm, I'm thirsty and maybe somebody up there is cooking and, and I can get something. Again, I had no idea where I was. This was just my reality and I was making the best of it. I knew it was dangerous, but I had to keep going. I came to a, a bend in the road and, and on one side, there was a man sitting in a chair, which I thought was strange. And then the other side, oh my gosh, there was all these tables laden with food. Oh, and they smelled so good from desserts to, to entrees to salads and everything. And, and there was this woman furiously fixing things and setting out dishes and making sure everything was, was ready. And I noticed again, it was a relative of mine. See, when I was down there, I never believed I was dead. I never felt dead, just confused. So I kept going. There was nothing else I could do. I asked her, please, could I have just a small plate of anything you got too much of and a glass of water? I'd really appreciate it. She just looked at me like she didn't even know me. And she said, this is for the important people. Well, that hurt. So I just got back on the road and kept going. I walked and walked and walked and walked and walked. At one point, there is no sense of humor in hell, but I had a little bit left. I said to myself, I think I'm on a big treadmill. I don't really seem to be getting anywhere, but I like to walk. This is good. Well, not too long after that, since it was so darkish, I could see people milling about. And I thought, well, this could be good news. This could be bad news. But as I got closer, I could, I could see that they were limping, dragging their feet and, and muttering, and making growling noises. And I thought, ah, oh, geez, this is not gonna be good. They had rags on and the women wore shawls that were ratty and dirty. And I had to go through this crowd of people. I don't know how many were there, maybe 20, to get to the other side of the road. There was no other place to go. 
So I thought to myself, well, maybe I'll just keep my eyes down and I'll shuffle, maybe growl a little bit and they'll think I'm one of them and I can get through onto the other side and keep going. Well, that worked for a little bit. I got about to the middle when they all froze. So did I. Then the women with the hat, shawl things on, they went to the outside of the group and the men started coming toward me. They were growling, muttering some language I didn't understand. And one reached up and punched me in the chest and sent me flying backwards onto my back. Another came by and kicked me. Then they jumped on me and did unspeakable things. When they were through, one of them leaned down and in my face and his breath stank and his face was, the skin was falling off, it was rotted. And he says, we all have AIDS and now you do too. You will not be able to die. You'll just get sicker and worse and that's your fate. Well, then they backed up and a lady came out Lady Demon, she was kind of half person and half demon, not an attractive look. She leaned over me and she says, you're one of us now, get up. So I had nothing better to do. And I thought, well, at least she'll get me away from these guys. So I gathered what was left of my ripped clothing and I stood up. And by then, I'm thinking, you know, I don't know if I'm going to get out of here or not. Along the way, the demons had said, you know, just despair, just give up. You'll never get out. But I always had hope. But by now, it was drifting away. I followed this lady to another group, and this was women like myself, who had obviously been through what I had. They had tattered clothing on. Their eyes were down. They were weeping. I got in line, and she took us to the edge of the forest, and before us was a tundra, ice and snow on the ground, no trees, as far as you could see. She told us to get in line and follow her. And so we did one by one as it started to snow. I thought, wow, how can this get any worse, you know? But it did. And we walked and walked until that snow was chest high. And the expression, cold as hell, is real. We were freezing. And as we finally got to this cabin, uh, for want of a better word, she opened the door and, and shoveled us all in, in inside and made us sit down on the floor. And there was no insulation and the snow was blowing through and it was so cold. And I said to her, I've been here a long time. And it just seems to be a particularly depressing bad energy, time, something I don't know about. And she says, well, it's Christmas on earth and that's always the worst day in hell. I thought, hell? I mean, I had been pushing that thought out of my mind, but to hear her say it, I was the last straw, but I wasn't giving up. I just started singing a Christmas carol my favorite one, Away in a Manger. I thought, what else is, can they do to me? I mean, I mean, really? 
So as I started singing away in a manger, no crib for his bed, she whirled around and she yelled, shut up, lifted a stick that she had been carrying. The other ladies kind of looked at me and I kept going. The little Lord, and as I got to that part, me and the ladies were singing together. She leapt at me like a spider and I closed my eyes and it went dark. And the light came up. But this time, I was infused with his tremendous love and joy and bliss. I couldn't believe it. I felt like every molecule of me was just swimming in this ocean of love completely saturating me. I was so happy and joyful and everything that had happened, I couldn't remember. It was nothing but the love. And then as I kind of looked around, it was seemed like this white light was kind of turning into a cathedral or someplace with white granite walls. And as I looked over straight ahead, oh my gosh, there was my friend, the one that had died only a month before. And he looked great. Last time I'd seen him, of course, with a Leukemia, his face was all mottled. He'd lost all his hair. His eye was all swollen with infection, but he looked wonderful. And instead of 53, he looked about 35. His hair wasn't gray, it was brown. He had on the sweater I gave him for Christmas. He was so happy to see me. He was just skipping from one foot to the next and like he really had a lot of things he wanted to tell me and I was just shocked but I was so happy and I thought, oops, he doesn't know he's dead. And I just thought that, but by the way he was laughing, I thought, oh my goodness, he heard me, he heard me. And if he's dead, then I'm dead. I was so excited, this must be heaven. And I said to him, why are we just standing here? You know, why are you standing in front of that doorway? And I saw a table over to one side with a great big book on it with it. It was open about halfway. And I thought he was showing me something in that book. What was it? But he started walking toward me and I was excited. And he said, now, Mary Kay, you've got too much left to do. What? I said, no. No, they were throwing me out. And I said, no, uh-uh. And he just smiled and boom, I was gone. But this time it was like in a meadow and, and there was a stream. And I figured later on when I'd had time to think about this whole thing, God was probably giving me a time out because I was angry and he wasn't gonna send me back in that condition. So I walked along this stream, which was going downhill and it was lovely. And I met this lady there and she spoke a language. I didn't really understand. It sounded Scandinavian, but she gave me this beautiful handmade quilt, small one. And I said, uh, thanks. And she motioned, still talking in some language, to go down further down the stream. So I put the quilt over my shoulder and walked down the stream. It really was lovely, sounded lovely with the, the water on the rocks. And 
Another lady was there. She was sitting in a rocking chair on a sand dune kind of thing. And, and she waved and I waved and she starts talking in this language and she hands me, uh, these were like trousseau items that you would get when you're going to become a bride. And and she gave me a little nighty thing with lace on it. And I thought, oh, thanks. Threw it over my shoulder, kept walking. The final lady gave me another pretty lacy gift. And then a piece of paper that she said in English, be sure and give this to my boyfriend's name and tell him you must live together. And I thought, can this get any weirder? Sure. So I took that piece of paper in my hand and then boom, it went dark. And oh yeah, the lights came up and they were way too bright. And there were all these people milling around and I thought, oh no, the zombie people are back. But then one of them said, oh, mom's awake. And the other one says, oh my gosh, she's back. And I thought, who are these people and what's going on? Why can't I move? Why can't I talk? And they gathered all around me and said, now, mom, my daughter says, you've been really, really sick. We didn't think you were going to make it, but you're back. And we prayed. Oh, we had a prayer chain going around the world. And I thought, Oh, you terrible people. Is this the reason I got thrown out of heaven? But I couldn't talk. I had, of course, the trach was still inside me. And I had dwindled down to 86 pounds because of just being fed in a nasal tube. So I had no muscle mass left. I couldn't move anything. The doctor came in a couple days later to examine me. The only thing I could move was one finger and I could blink. That was it. So here I am with this message reverberating, you've got too much left to do. And I thought, I can't even breathe by myself. How am I gonna get all this stuff done so I can go back to heaven? Well, I had been in the ICU in a coma for almost three weeks. And then I had to stay another week to try and get me out of that bed and to be able to sit in a chair. They had to tie me in. I had no muscles. I was like a rag doll. I had to go through some other things for them to put me into a rehabilitation hospital for a month. The insurance company said, we'll pay for one month. After that, you go to a convalescent hospital. In my mind, I said, and die, you know, because I would get no help. But I did go. I had to learn how to walk and talk and crawl and swallow and button and go up and down stairs. It was a real job. It was very depressing. I'm a very independent person, and this was about as nasty as a life could get for me. My family was terrific. They stayed for about three weeks. The guy I had been dating came to see me every single day after work. He had to drive an hour there and an hour back. I was there a month, and I finally got to go home. They said that I couldn't live alone. So I had a choice between living with my parents at the age of 53 or with my boyfriend who proposed to me in the hospital made all the nurses cry. I opted for the boyfriend that was going to marry me and I went home. I was very depressed. I was still haunted by the demons. I was not sure of what the hell that was all about. How did a good Catholic girl like me get thrown in hell? I had a lot of time to think about it and nobody wanted to hear my story. They got too upset. That's depressing. That's that's weird. Why were you in hell anyway? What'd you do that we don't know about? So I started writing. 
I just would write it out as much as I could think of. And then I would put it in a drawer thinking if I could just get this out of my head, I'll be sane and I, I can start to have my life back. It's been 23 years. It's still there. As you can tell, I can tell it. I mean, I can't remember a dream I had yesterday. So no, it was not a dream. It was an actual experience and it happened in my soul, not in my brain. That's why me and all the other NDE people recall everything that happens to them. It took me 10 years to find a group called IONS, the International Association of Near-Death Studies. I went uh, through a series of synchronicities that happen a lot when you come back that got me up there to people who knew exactly what I had been through. They had never heard of a distressing near-death experience, so they badgered me into telling my story. I thought I would just die of shame when I did, but they were so supportive. They even clapped when we all got out of, out of Helsing and the Christmas Carol. That was 10 years ago. And last weekend, I was up there for the 10 year anniversary of telling my story. And I told it again to some of the new people from a whole different perspective, because being around the people from IONS and all those terrific dead people that are like me, very homesick for heaven, uh, not afraid to die, Looking forward to it, actually, if I could just get everything done, I get to go home. But they're very wonderful people. They explain their parts of their experiences. It's, you know, the eternity is so immense that one person can't come back and tell you the whole thing. It's like sending a person to America and giving them five days to go through the entire United States and then come back and tell you about it. So we each bring back just like a little puzzle piece when we come and then you get to share your puzzle piece and we get a better picture of what was going on there. And you'll still, you know, with our little human brains, there's no way we can ever understand eternity or the plan or why we're here. But what I understand now is that we are all part of God. I mean, our souls are part of God. And, and in heaven, we decide we want to go down to earth and learn things. And you can't learn anything in heaven because you pretty much know it. But if you get in another situation like Earth, being a human being with all our foibles and our, our good points and our not so good points, we can learn things. So I believe that I chose to have that experience. That was one of the things I chose in reading some books, finally, that I found about distressing your death experiences. One lady who is an expert on it said that the people that have the dark experiences are the brave ones, not the condemned ones, not the damned ones. And for some reason, I chose to come down and have that experience so that I could come back and share with others what I learned. And what I learned was that God is all loving, all forgiving, and would never condemn anybody. Anything that I was taught about God sending people to purgatory or to hell is not true. I believe that we choose to come down here and learn things. I learned a lot when I had a, a newborn baby die. I learned empathy that was helpful to some of my friends who lost babies later on. I've learned patience. I've learned all kinds of things that I wanted to learn. And so I am certain that I went to that place, for want of a better word, it was a manifestation that I had because I believed I would. From the time I was small, I was taught, you know, Kathy, there's heaven, purgatory, and hell. 
Only people that go straight to heaven are like Mother Teresa. The rest of us go to purgatory. I was told we get our sins burned off and then we go up to heaven and be purified first. The people in hell, Kathy, they that's the same place as purgatory, but in hell, those are people that choose to stay there. They, for whatever reason, they, they do. They were actually condemned by God is what I was taught, but I don't believe that. So there's been a lot of changes in the way I think and feel and believe. And if a person is open to it, I'll be happy to tell them about it. I don't force my opinions on anybody. Everybody's chosen their own life and what happens to them. It's a wonderful thing to know you're not a victim anymore. When things happen to me, I now say, hmm, I planned that. What was I hoping to learn? It makes life a lot easier. I feel a lot freer. I know I'm going to go home. And uh, so I'm just here to share my story and hope it helps you. Thank you.